Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Anoushka Kellyan, Deputy Editor of the New Statesman website, and this week I'll be speaking to George Eaton and Stephen Bush about the trouble for the Tories regarding their tax credit cuts, and then to Kate Mossman and Stephanie Boland about girls in bands and whether there are too few of them. I'm joined by George Eaton, our politics editor, and Stephen Bush, our Staggers editor, to discuss the week in politics. Now, I'm sure we can all agree that it's been a bad week for the Tories. Um, they, their tax credit cuts proposals were defeated in the House of Lords. Now, George, do you want to tell us what happened on that night? Yes, they suffered two big defeats in, in the House of Lords. Uh, the key one over um, a Labour motion was to abandon the tax credit cuts until they've set out how they compensate uh, those who are going to lose out for a minimum of three years and that obviously is a big um, political defeat and it's also one that could prove uh, quite expensive. Uh, the tax credit cuts are forecast to save £4.5 billion in the first year so we're talking significant sums here and George Osborne quite conveniently actually now has um, the autumn statements in a few weeks time to set out how he'll um, modify the proposals as he said immediately afterwards how he'll help claimants in the transition period um, and I don't think he'll, he won't adopt the uh, Labour proposal uh, exactly because he, he doesn't want to be seen to allow the Lords to, to call the shots, um, not least because they're challenging the uh, legitimacy of, of, of the vote. But um, I think it's, it's certain now that he will have to significantly uh, alter the cuts and would have done so, actually, um, even had it not been for, for the Lords' defeat because of the pressure he'd been coming under from some Tory MPs, from people like Boris Johnson, from Zach Goldsmith, um, from The Sun, and, uh, and from Labour as well. Stephen, why did it come to this? Because everyone was talking about how George Osborne would be tempted to U-turn on this policy because of the pressure that George mentioned that he was under from all sides. I mean, why did he, why did he follow through with this and why did, it, why did it end in a defeat? What's effectively happened is an element of the Conservative Party has sort of swallowed its own PR. They have this sense of themselves as a all-conquering machine. They've just won this unexpected majority. And there are, frankly, a lot of ridic- ridiculous policy ideas around tax credits just floating around left and right. Then they'd kind of swallowed hook, line and sinker, this idea that um, 
they they subsidize low pay i mean they do but they don't create low pay um and the because basically the tory idea was what would happen is you'd take away tax credits and suddenly the private sector would go oh look here's here's your pay rise and obviously that's not the case and partly what started to happen is that businesses and trade unions were starting to go uh actually no this is a terrible idea but it's always the way with policy um cock-ups governments are just really bad at u-turning because they think it makes them look weak and then of course they have to u-turn and they look weak and stupid Mm -hmm. yes and how easy is it going to be george for george osborne to sort of row back slightly on these reforms that he wanted to make well i think it will be easy in the sense that everyone recognizes it it's it's the right thing to do but um it does have implications for his deficit reduction program um not least because uh Growth may be slightly lower than expected. The GDP figure uh, this week uh, was 0.5%. That's down from 0.7% in the previous quarter. And Osborne's big target is to achieve a budget surplus by 2019-20, and that's a, a fixed date, and he's staked a lot of political credibility on that. Unfortunately for him, uh, the budget is forecast to be in surplus by $10 billion at that point. So that, theoretically, is enough to cover all of the $4.5 billion that the tax credit cuts would would save, and so he does have um, quite a lot of space to make um, to make um, adjustments. But look, I mean, this is the this is the first big blow to him since the election. He, as chancellor and as political strategist, could take a lot of credit for the uh, Tories' majority, and um, his enemies have uh, have been strengthened by this and have rightly taken satisfaction. But it's important to remember that uh, Osborne's a politician who's been written off many times before after the. Oleg uh, Derry Pasco affair, his meeting with the, the Russian oligarch, which almost cost him his job as, as shadow chancellor, after the Omni Shambles budget in, in 2012, and then more recently when he delivered the autumn statements and uh, announced that public spending would fall to the lowest level since the 1930s, which gave Labour a new attack line. On every at every on every occasion, he's been able to to recover. So um, it's far too early to to write him off and to suggest that this is. Uh, serious blow to his leadership prospect. Well, obviously, it was a big blow for this new government. But what are the landmines ahead? What other policies do you think will come uh, under such uh, scrutiny as the tax credits cuts? I think in general, the deficit reduction timetable, uh, coupled with... Um, so they basically have hemmed themselves in on three sides. And I think it's, it's like being in one of those walls in an action movie where the walls are getting closer and closer. So the first wall is their promises to pensioners. Uh, who are sort of the an instrumental part of their electoral coalition are baby boomers, uh, affluent pensioners, uh, landlords who vital let landlords who have retired and are uh, are you know are effectively living off um, the private rented sector, and then their third is the only working era demographic um, to do better on the, the coalition and the Conservatives and Labour, which is dual learner couples without any children. So there's all of their promises to them. Uh, freezing ben- pensions benefits, continual increases in uh, the uh, personal tax allowance for the dual earner couples, and then finally these changes to buying and to stamp duty, which are mainly uh, benefits for the boomer landlord. So they've got to keep all of the money for that, which means they can't go back on any of those tax cuts. They've also got to um, uh, balance the books by 2020. But then you can't cut any of those things. They don't want to cut tax credits because they've seen how politically catastrophic it is. Banking, for a moment, the fact that it also drives uh, lots of people into po- into greater poverty. 
Um, and it's very difficult to work out how they can achieve all of those things. And then the third problem for Osborne is obviously he wants to become Prime Minister at the end of the story. Then if he didn't want to be Prime Minister, it would be very easy because he'd just say, oh, I'm going to push back the deficit reduction target by a bit. I've, I'm a listening government. It would probably destroy his credibility with Tory MPs, but it would mean the Conservative chance of being re-elected would be a lot higher, harder. And it's very difficult to see how he keeps deficit target, promises to their client voters, and... Um, without hitting too many voters to create this anti-Conservative coalition in 2020. And lastly, George, is Labour in any shape to challenge these kind of problems the Tory government are having? They're certainly in a place to, to, to challenge the Tories and to, I think, have further victories such as the one they had over, over tax credits. But as the last Parliament showed, a lot of uh, tactical wins don't necessarily add up to a big strategic victory or, or an election victory. It's almost hard to forget now just how much went wrong for the coalition uh, mm. in the last parliament, how many crises there were, scandals, um, the, the, the missing the deficit targets, uh, NHS reorganisation, uh, the bedroom tax, none of this, uh, none of the, uh, so many things described as, uh, as the new poll tax. And they ended up not uh, not only uh, not losing the election, but but winning it, of course, and exceeding their exceeding their vote and winning a majority. So, the the test for any opposition is not whether you can be, or not just whether you can be uh, a force for for a, a protest and uh, hold the government to account, but whether you you are seen as a credible government in waiting, and that's what uh, Labour has to has to relentlessly focus on. Thank you very much for joining me, George and Stephen. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. This week we talked about the lobster, pop sensation Lord, and 90s BBC sitcom As Time Goes By. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. I'm joined by Stephanie Boland, our digital assistant, and Kate Mossman, our arts editor, uh, to discuss a piece that Kate has written in this week's magazine um, off the back of a documentary you've been making about women in bands. So do you want to explain to us, first of all, why you decided to make this documentary and what's it about? Yeah, so the documentary is called Girl in a Band, and it's a tribute to the Kim Gordon uh, memoir that came out earlier this year. And she makes this really good point um, that female rock musicians are always asked by male um, journalists. So what's it like being a girl in rock? And that it's very difficult to answer that question because you have no other experience. The other thing that Gordon said that made me want to do this programme was that she started the section on Sonic Youth in her own memoir with the line much has been written about Sonic Youth, here's how I remember it. <laughs> and I thought you would not find a male musician who would ever say that about their own band in their own book about their own band. So there's this wonderful sense of knowing that you're writing your story against 30 years of um, analysis. By it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. By other people who are probably blokes, and you're just going to see it in a certain way. And we thought that maybe, although obviously everybody knows about Patti Smith, and they know about Joan Jett, and they know about all the great sort of um, female front rock women, 
possibly there are lots of them out there who haven't told their stories, and that's what this program was. Okay, and what were what were the main stories that stood out? for you from the women that you interviewed? We talked to Tina Weymouth out of um, Talking Heads, who was the bass player from Talking Heads with the, the sort of gamine haircut. A lot of people um, uh, still don't know that there's a female member of Talking Heads. If you haven't particularly followed the band, it's always a bit of a surprise to see this, this woman thrumming away on bass. She was a really, really good bass player. And she was a really good example of maybe the reasons that um, women get into bands with blokes, which is that often there would be some instrument like the bass, for example, that no one else wanted to play. And the woman might be going out with the drummer, as uh, she was in this case, and she's kind of cajoled. I think David Byrne made her audition three times before he took her on, but he knew it was a good idea. And it's just it's just such an interesting subject that, you know, there was, there was a kind of a lot of reluctance on behalf of some of the women we interviewed to have joined groups, like Gillian Gilbert out of New Order as well. But when they did, they fitted seamlessly into this... Um, into this musical outfit and they became part of the identity of the band and yet they were still often never brought out for the interview mm. but they may be dragged to the front for the photo shoot because they were the pretty girl so it, they had a, such a strange time of it really they were the focus and then they were kind of silent as well mm. okay and stephanie having read kate's piece i wonder if there was anything that surprised you from what the the women were saying what i found surprising was the number of um the number of bands that you just haven't heard of at all. So you've got this wonderful band that you've kind of, well, I hadn't heard of them, possibly I'm very ignorant, kind of unearthed called the Liverbirds, um, who must have been incredibly famous in their day and went to Hamburg with the Beatles and just hadn't... They apparently were styled by Astrid Kircher, who also worked on the Beatles look with them. They were very masculine looking. They looked absolutely amazing. You've got to Google a picture of the Liverbirds because <laughs> you can't believe this band existed in 1963, but they did. And they went over to Hamburg... And they kind of took off there, but they never took off in the UK, so they never came back. And what really fascinated me about them was that they were 16, 17 years old. And we think that, you know, young women are much more free now to do what they want, and this is true to a certain extent. You know, it's an unusual sort of case with these guys, but they, they went over there without their mums and dads and on their, on their own completely, and they made a career for themselves. And I just, I don't know, I found them absolutely fascinating. They, you know, Jimmy Savile was one of their early champions. And I said to them, like, so was there any, did anything weird ever happen? Like, were you ever sort of threatened by guys? Were you, did you ever have sleazy managers and stuff? And they were just like, no, no, no. Great times, great times. <laughs> we just had fun. We, we earned really good money and we really loved playing. And it was just a, a sort of very... Um, a remarkable way of looking back on them. Particularly, they're in their 70s now. Well, one of my favourite parts of, of your piece about uh, about this documentary was an interview that you did with Tina Weymouth, Talking Heads, and she described how she never had time to wash her clothes, so she washed them in the bath with her and then packed them wet. And, and you said, actually, that that is sort of more enlightening about what it's like to be on tour than just having old blokes telling you how crazy it was. Yeah, there have been a few memoirs recently. Uh, Louise Werner from Sleeper and Viv Albertine from The Slits, mm. they've written books, which show that um, women's uh, testimony of time and bands is often quite a sort of nuanced one. A real sense often of kind of bemusement with the, the whole business of fame and being in a group and a sense that maybe there was life beyond it. You know, it was great while it lasted, but you would go on and to do something else. And I really got that sort of sense talking to Tina that, you know, it, it, this is a very humane way of describing what it's like being on tour, tipping in these tiny little... Um, miniature shampoo bottles into the bath after you'd been in it and then trampling them in she says like in a vineyard you know <laughs> stamping the the mark out of her and her her husband's clothes and then trying to pack them up wet and i did think that you know you ask a an old rocker like alice cooper what it's like being on the road and they're going to go 
oh, it was wild, it was crazy. <laughs> and you think, well, what does that mean? You know? So um, it, I just think that there are so many of these, these women out there who have stories and have often not been particularly asked to tell them, and that's what we were hoping to do with the programme. And um, you do mention how there's still a lack of girl drummers and bassists and guitarists. And Stephanie, I remember um, last summer we worked on a story about how uh, Reading Festival, the lineup, if you took out all of the bands listed that had uh, men in them, there were very few left over. You that kind had... of have three left in the line. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the other thing that's really striking about Kate's piece and what you were just saying is so many of these women get brought into the bands because they have a personal relationship with someone. And you kind of go through and you go, there must be, you think of people um, like Tina Weymouth or Candida Doyle in Pulp, where they're brought in because they have a specific technical skill. So there must be out there a whole untapped pool of yeah. female talent. And that's just Definitely, and there, there's a, a, a lot of very subtle reasons why women don't get into bands. It's not that they're not interested in playing instruments, but if you think possibly about the way that little girls don't, aren't encouraged to play with trucks and things yeah. like that when they're, when they're toddlers... Girls maybe don't pick up guitars when they're 10 or 11 because there might be a sense that's what boys do. And as Mickey Berigny from Lush pointed out to us, you know, there's no fun going along to Denmark Street to do a demo, to try out a guitar when there's going to be six guys standing around showing you how to do it. (laughs) So it's not that, you know, they weren't interested in music. They were often absolute music geeks and obsessives, but maybe they just felt that there was something too big to push against. I'm not necessarily going to bother trying to get into a band because... That's what boys do. And you have a really interesting... I love how you, um, in Kate's piece, she finishes the first paragraph by going, I've always thought that men and women feel exactly the same way about music. It's just that they talk about it in different ways. Could you speak a bit more about that? Because that was so interesting to yeah, me. That... This idea used to kind of bother me when I started off in music journalism. I did actually hear people say, often men, that, um, <laughs> that men are real geeks, they're real nerds. They love collecting music and cataloguing and showing off how much they know. For women, it's much more emotional. And it just rubbed me up the wrong way because I thought there's nothing um, that implies seriousness about music like being emotionally attached to it. You know, you could have one record that you listen to till it breaks. That means that you're really into the music. But the way a lot of men see it, it's actually about you show your interest in music by cataloguing. You curate your, your big of your records. Alphabetical yeah. order. Um, you buy multiple formats of an album. Some of them you don't even remove from their plastic wrapping because you know. And I thought, how can that show that you that you love it more that than you love it? it yeah. You know? So I think I think men and women love music in exactly the same way. But but often maybe women use the word love when it comes to a song a lot easier than men do. So that's why men possibly say oh, no, but you've got to hear the early version. Oh, you've got to hear the one with Phil Spector producing it, that kind of thing. And you think, this is all the same thing. This is just because we love it, really. Uh, There's no doubt that female pop stars have ruled the charts since about um, the mid-2000s when the sort of soul revival happened with Adele and Amy Winehouse and Duffy and, you know, Lily Allen and all that crew. And we love female solo stars. They're still, they're hugely powerful. They're the most powerful people in music across the entire world. But I think maybe the kind of what I like to think of as a sort of rock's engine room, the, mm. the, the, the people making the, the rock music and the indie music and working in bands of three or four tend to still be the guys. So there's a strange kind of, we do want women in the spotlight and we love to see them in the spotlight, but maybe the, the actual nuts and bolts of music are often being made by men still. And I, and I sense it is still the same kind of questions that you get asked. I don't, I don't know if you 
found this speaking to women in rock, but when I interviewed Kim Gordon last year and apologised for asking her about her kit and those kind of technical questions, she said in this really world-weary, oh, well, at least you're not asking me about my husband. So she clearly faces this long line of journalists who just want to talk about Thurston Moore. Yeah, and yeah. there's a, do you know, Savages as well, the, um, the uh, sort of French and London rock band Savages, all-female group, um, and they uh, did a gig in New York earlier this year, and it was put under the headline something like Women at Work or um, uh, Girl Band Takes LA, uh, New York by Storm <laughs> or something. And everyone got really annoyed about this, and all their, their supporters tweeted um, about how terrible and sort of reductive that was. And actually the subs went in and changed the, the caption on the New York Times um, website, so it just said, you know, banned. I mean, it possibly haven't actually come that far when it comes to actually seeing a group of, of girls with guitars and drums on stage. And not just thinking there's a band. And not just there. thinking there's a band. I don't know if we will ever think there's a band. We will always think it's a girl band. You can watch Girl in a Band on Friday night, Friday the 30th yeah, of tomorrow. October, on BBC4 at 10pm. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.